0: Hello, and welcome
1: to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined here today by Earl. Hello. And Noah. Hi, y'all. Today, we're going to be talking about a uh, subject that's near and dear to our hearts, workplace democracy. And we're going to do that for two reasons. The first of those is that it's cool as hell. Mm -hmm. um, Done right. It's something that is sort of central to our ideas as leftists about what the world should look like.
2: Yeah. No, it's at the core of a lot of things that we have argued on the show before. When the three of us did an episode about jobs guarantees, one of the reasons that we uh, sort of chose that over the idea of a universal basic income was that it would help workers see themselves as um, participants in a democratic process and it would help them argue for their own rights and this is sort of the structural side to that.
1: A, a jobs guarantee, we, we talked about um, the idea that the government should guarantee that everybody has a job. We What we said was basically, in a roundabout way, this gives workers power over their workplaces by giving them power over the people in charge of the government, democracy. Right. And if we believe that democracy is the best way of operating a government, what we as socialists, as members of the Punching Out Collective, believe is that democracy is also a really good way to manage the economy.
3: Yeah, if you're a a person, and (laughs) as as you probably are, there's probably some dogs listening as well, um, but, uh, you know, you likely want to steer your own ship. uh, And the way to do that um, is to be able to, you know, practice self-determination in all aspects of your life and for some reason in the u.s uh people just accept uh dictatorships at work um and if you you know if you want to live a free life then you need democracy in the workplace yeah
2: we we take crap from our workplaces that we would never accept from our government we we allow our boss to do things to us that we would complain about if they were done by the president or governor or mayor.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know if either of you two read the book. I only read part of it. Um, there was a recent book called uh, Private Governments by Elizabeth Anderson where she explicitly made that argument that you just said in like 15 words.
3: So uh,
2: <laughs> That's why I didn't read the book.
1: Right.
3: <laughs> no need. <laughs>
1: exactly. Right. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. So workplace democracy, you know the idea that you should have power over – your boss in the same way that he or she has power over you is important because power allows you to do things that you otherwise couldn't. And we said there were two reasons why we were discussing this subject. The other is that there's a recent bill put, piece of legislation put on the table by Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts, where one of, it's a a broad-based bill about, you know, requiring corporations of a certain size to have, like, federal charters. But um, one of the aspects of this bill and the part that we're most interested in is effectively a uh, measure of workplace democracy. It's co-determination would be another way for it, but effectively what her bill calls for is that companies of, I, th- I think, uh, $1 billion in revenue yep, or more correct, would yeah. um, be required to have representatives of workers make up 40% of their board and Mm -hmm. thus have decision-making power, albeit minority power.
3: Yeah. Yep. Uh, And just to tie something in with that too, 40% of the board would be elected by the employees. And then also one of the other aspects of the bill is that any political activity that the corporation takes place in would require uh, 75% approval from the shareholders, but also 75% of approval from the board, uh, which now... Uh, you know, has some employee representation, so that just means, you know, you know the stockholder class can't steamroll... Exclusively roll, run right. the business's political... political arm, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, hopefully... I mean, there's a lot of hopefully's about this bill, yeah, but okay. uh, it's it's not terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it,
1: it, I think, actually, we're quite fond of it, it at least on paper. Mm, right, yeah. We'll, we'll get into during this segment some yeah. of the reasons to be skeptical and some of the ways it doesn't go far enough but compared to everything else that's on the table right. in the United States yeah. of America it's not bad.
2: Yeah. No. It's it's a pretty it's a surprisingly good measure for a country that is I mean the the in a country in which workplace culture is abysmal. Yeah. I mean we've um we were we all read this uh current affairs article about the need for workplace democracy mm-hmm. and it paints a a picture that at least I was somewhat familiar with through secondhand experience but a picture of what life is like inside an Amazon warehouse and the language that is used to refer to one of the bleakest workplaces in the U.S., if not in the world necessarily, is uh, nothing but doublespeak. I mean, so they mentioned it's not a warehouse, it's a fulfillment center, workers aren't fired, they're released, they're all associates, even Jeff Bezos is an associate, which Jeff Bezos is 150 is worth 150 billion dollars. He is the richest man in literal world history and these people are trying to make him seem but he's just like you. Right. And that's not um you know I I think we're all going to like you said we're all going to talk about the reasons why maybe this bill doesn't go as far as we would like it to mm. but when your starting point is that it is once again very hard to argue with something even when you do see it as a half measure. The,
1: right. the idea of giving the stripping 40% of the power of the Jeff Bezoses of the
2: world
3: isn't bad. No, yeah. No. I'm, I'm in favor of that. You yeah. Know, it's not For, 100%. Right, uh, 40% a, a good start.
2: And there are other provisions in there that would make it particularly, uh, it disin- disincentivizes stock-based compensation and and so on. So even beyond just the 40% of that uh of, uh, on the board, you also have ways to even like punch harder at the power of employers and shareholders because like half of Americans don't own any stock whatsoever.
1: Just to take a step back, why is Elizabeth Warren putting this bill forth right now? It's the midterms are coming up and this is. A useful piece of political theater to the extent that people see it over, you know, everything else that's going on in the news cycle. Democratic presidential hopefuls, of which Warren is one, are sort of climbing over each other at the moment to appeal to the left, which since the 2016 election has been seen as, you know, this sort of thing you need to have the support of if you're going to be a Democratic leader. And so Warren's bill is, maybe the most radical of the proposals we've seen, but we've also seen, as mentioned before, uh, a jobs guarantee proposal from Cory Booker, of all people. Mm-hmm. We've seen uh, Kristen Gilbrand, the uh, senator from our state, support postal banking, which is a cool idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, none of these ideas are going to get passed by Donald Trump, and I think there's reason to be skeptical that they will be passed even when Democrats take power. But, As we said on the job guarantee episode, it's cool that, you know, at least the leadership sees a need to appeal to the left in this moment. They see where the writing on the wall is.
3: Yeah, I think they recognize um, that there's a strong ascendancy right now in progressive leftist politics in general. Um, And then even in in the so Warren's bill is called the Accountable Capitalism Act. Um, and so I think uh, you know well uh, right, exactly uh, but you know there's a there's in my mind anyway, there's a real they're really trying to prop up capitalism against the potential, yep, real onslaught against it like they've, the if the tides are in fact changing, then they need to start. Peppering in a little, you know, a little bit at a time, which is part of the reason why I'm I do really like this material. It's gonna be great if they if we can get this pass or something like that. Um, but we got to keep we got to keep pushing
2: for sure. That's the yeah, thing. Yeah.
3: They're running scared and they're running scared because right. the left
2: has been able to keep up pressure. Yeah, and the danger that we face now is the possibility. I I don't think this is as much the case as uh, my natural temperament would lead me to worry about it. Mm. But I think that. There is a danger of co-optation, right, of of, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker and Bernie Sanders and Kirsten Gillibrand and this other class of presidential hopefuls adopting these proposals when they need the left and then walking away from them. And it's not like we haven't faced this before. Elizabeth Warren explicitly puts herself in the tradition of the New Deal. And as we've talked before on this show, people – look back on the New Deal fondly as an era when, you know, supposedly um, these gains in in economic growth and so on were more fairly shared by the population than they are now, which is true to an extent, Mm -hmm. right? But what people miss in that fond remembrance is that FDR was very explicitly doing it to break the power of the communists and socialists who right. were in ascendancy during that time period, yeah. we cannot afford to make that same mistake. If we want, we want these gains to be um, come to fruition. Yes, right. yeah. and, and, go, and, and and to and, go further. and be permanent. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing.
3: So that's the that's the big thing about the big difference, you know, about what we have in the U.S. now and what a co-determined workplace, or you know, hopefully longer term, you know, just straight out worker-owned. Uh, uh, and, and managed workplaces is, is that, and, and what's true of New Deal, uh, the New Deal as well, is that they, there's explicit social, you know, implications, uh, It's social dimension rather is like what I, what I would say. Whereas what we have now, U.S. corporatism is just straight psychopathy. Mm-hmm. Like there's no, uh, you know, CEOs, CEOs are basically the henchmen of shareholders, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're legally Obligated, they're bound to do what's best for the shareholder, and the shareholder, they demand the maximization of profit. So even if, even if an executive was like, "Well, I mean, I'd really prefer not to have kids make these shoes," uh, that person could get sued. I mean, maybe not directly. They do this thing called um, derivative suit or something like that. It's mm-hmm. all, it's all wonkiness over my head, uh, you know. Um, but they're they're legally bound to do what's best. Doesn't matter what they're uh, social social dimension cannot play uh, a part in shareholder run, um, you know, corporate America.
1: Well, well, I think Elizabeth Warren is very clear about this distinction between what she calls a stakeholder capitalism, the capitalism of the 30s through, say, the 70s. You know, the New Deal where workers saw a larger part of the wealth and the profits that grew from growth, and shareholder capitalism, which is what we're under today, where Mm -hmm. CEOs now have, you know, 300 times the income of the average worker. And I think, to some extent, that's true. It accurately describes a shift that occurred. But she kind of misses the reasons why. It wasn't, you know, the benevolence of the CEOs of, you know, the Ford family in the 50s that caused workers to see a larger slice of the pie. They had power by having a larger uh, union density, was at 30%, 40% in this country. Yeah. And as we've talked about repeatedly on the show, there were huge labor battles, violent strikes that resulted in workers seeing larger share of profits.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think, as in so many cases, what Warren, Warren's rhetoric about this bill there's a correct there's a sort of correct diagnosis in that she is correctly uh, pointing out where the trend has gone and and sort of what is happening at the moment and why that's bad. But I think she and many other politicians, for very obvious reasons, remain very beholden to this idea that you know if you just place the right constraints on the market, then the market will work itself out.
1: She attributes what has happened to the wrong causes, basically. Basically, It's, it's yeah. not just an increase in psychopath CEOs. It is a decrease in worker power, mm-hmm. a right. decrease in the ability to hold those CEOs in check. Um, and Nancy Pelosi is also fond of drawing this distinction between shareholder capitalism and stakeholder capitalism. And it, in some ways, it's the same rhetorical trick as when libertarians tell you oh no i'm not in favor of crony capitalism what we need is real capitalism it's it's a way of trying to differentiate what the horrors we're seeing now from you know i
3: mean the system that's causing it right earl you had a great phrase
2: for people who say things like that yeah uh,
3: ex- exploitation apologists yeah um and and it, and so one of the uh, the obvious problem with the, the libertarian stance on that, and the, the exploitation apologists, right, is that their their brand of freedom means that, well, you can quit. Y- mm-hmm. You know, when you when you go to work at Amazon, they assume you deserve those conditions because you accepted that deal. Uh, y- you know, so so in their mind, that's the most democratic and like free society that they can think of is that well, you can choose to accept this misery, and you do, and therefore. You deserve it, basically. Yeah. And when, of course, that's not true. Anyone that's ever had to, anyone that's ever lived paycheck to paycheck or have been even worse off than that, uh, knows that that's not. It's not a decision. That's a predicament. You're. They're not the same thing. Uh, you know. You're like, yeah, you can choose to be homeless, I guess, and go li- live in the woods or, or something if that's your thing. And so, you know, there's a small percentage of people that do that, um, but importantly you know like we talked about with the job guarantee or, or any kind of ubi or anything like that that's the only that's the only way that you actually have an option then then what they're saying would be true well yes you did like who, but that's the thing is no one would do that right like who right. would opt to work in a fulfillment center for amazon uh if they didn't have to uh you know what you I mean? don't even work for it you associate with it right that's right you just you yeah, you got, it's like your buddies like you yeah. go out to yeah you associate and then you go out for drinks afterwards yes. uh but but yeah, that's the yeah the idea that you know the workplace workplaces in the U.S. are so undemocratic, and for a nation that seems to pride itself on democracy and freedom, uh, I don't know why people are so okay with th- these undemocratic processes.
2: <laughs> It's almost like if you have to keep saying it, it might not be true. Right, yeah. You
3: just keep trying – yeah, just keep reminding. Saying it over and over again, it'll become true.
1: I think there are also critiques to be had about our actual democracy, but uh, this is not the show for that. Certainly. Yeah. Right. Which
2: Elizabeth Warren also – like there's – these politicians, they they like to say things like – I think in one interview she says explicitly, you know, this is outright theft. That's not capitalism. And I
3: think we on this show would – argue that the two if yeah. not we always the, uh, i think i actually slapped my forehead when i read that just yeah. sitting at home in front of my computer like oh, God, i had a cartoon moment right? i i yelled
2: at the laptop and i scared yeah. my dog
1: <laughs> we yeah. the emoji with the scratching the chin yeah I,
2: really yeah. makes you think yeah
1: yeah, yeah. um she's almost there
3: <laughs> yeah. capitalism is theft <laughs> yeah just take out the knot <laughs> yeah. that's all you need sorry. yeah sorry
1: yeah um she's trying to thread this very strange needle where she's putting forth what is undeniably a progressive policy mm. the closest policy to what we want that maybe we've seen in this country in a, quite some time Yeah. and she's doing it in the language of you know protecting capitalism she's very explicit about this
3: yeah.
1: it's right just, in the name where we're, we're almost used to the opposite where Politicians put forth, you know, moderate policies while, you know, trying to talk up their progressive credentials, and she's trying to do the inverse of that, mm-hmm. which, I, which I think is very interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is. It's just sadly not enough because mm-hmm. ultimately, as you're saying, it doesn't address the actual cause, which is that workers have no power, and if you try to use the language of markets and capitalism you are surrendering that field to the CEOs and to the shareholders I think
1: and right. speaking of surrendering there's uh, a bit in where she talks about i part of her stated reasoning for this is that if corporations are people we should expect them to act like people but you know that takes for granted that corporations are people which mm-hmm. you know everyone laughed right. at Mitt Romney
2: for saying just 6 years ago yeah. well i think the Funny part was he assumed he had friends when he <laughs> said that, but no, it's um, it, it is, and and that is a legal fiction. Like I know I am very specifically dealing with the language here, but that's kind of my wheelhouse. And when we say that corporations have personhood, mm-hmm. we are saying they have legal personhood. We are not saying they are human beings who walk around like you and me and are do all of the same rights. So she is not only accepting the language of markets and the language of the shareholders, she's accepting a thing that's not even true
3: so so I read that a little more like optimistically and almost like tongue in cheek when she was referring to well, if you know corporations have personhood then you know they should hold up their end of the social contract which you're you're probably right but as i was reading it i was just like oh she's being she's being kind of snarky and like making fun of the idea that that's so absurd uh you know but i don't know i honestly i mean i can't guess her intentions but in either case i like the i like the imagery of okay well if we're gonna let them uh y- you know money's free speech and blah blah, blah 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 then okay well then they can't be psychos either because Generally, it's frowned upon to be to act uh, psychotically in society. So if you do that and you're a corporation, maybe you shouldn't do that. <laughs> you <know>? No, no, <laughs> I, I completely agree. She's clearly
2: trying to own them by their own logic kind of thing. Okay, sweet. Yeah. But no, I, I agree with that part. Yeah. I just think that even when you're trying to snark on it um, – when you actually call the document a federal charter of corporate personhood or whatever, that may not be the official name, Oh, right. but that's yeah. basically what it works out to. Yeah. I feel like ultimately it's still kind of saying like, wink, wink, like we are sharing in this joke right. and what we want are politicians who will say like, no, 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 right. not only I, I get the joke, I'm not joining in on it right. because it's yeah. not funny. Yeah.
3: Well, and also too, we, we know as, as citizens of the internet, how <laughs> bad people are at understanding jokes. Um, so there's going to be a lot of people that read that and are just going to take it completely. Yeah. Literally. I've,
1: I've seen some very, um, cause this has been a recurring stick of hers almost in, over the past few months is playing up her capitalist bona fides. And mm-hmm. nobody who like avowedly talks about capitalism is, you know, seeing that and not looking skeptically at her because they think she's a communist mm-hmm. <laughs> and right. nobody on the left is seeing that. and um, being really think she's a it. communist yeah. 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 yeah nobody on the left is happy to see that I guess.
2: yeah like nobody is buying the shtick is what you're yeah. saying
1: well i i think we are saying yeah she's a capitalist and the alex joneses of the world are <laughs> you know putting out articles that accuse yeah. her of lying through her right. teeth and yeah. you know being a secret it's communist. a
3: weird talking point because it's not it's not I'm, politically advantageous for her right to talk that's about. what i should in say it's not making anybody yeah, happy yeah right yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which honestly i don't even think she has to mention it because the stuff like this uh, is a slam dunk the, regardless of like any anytime they put a poll out and ask people well, what do you think about more democracy in the workplace what do, you, what do you think about like specifically what do you think about voting for who your boss is Slam dunk. People love not It doesn't matter, does not matter what side, is, what side you're on. You know what I mean? It yeah. doesn't matter where you fall on the political it, spectrum. People are like, yes, I've had a dum-dum. Nice. For a bo- and I would prefer not to have a dum-dum, you know, or someone that doesn't <laughs> you slack. You know, whatever. There's lots of reasons why you'd want to vote on your boss. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: And this is without the idea of really being in our public discourse that much. Uh, right.
3: The polling I saw is is it's doing
1: – it's more popular than the idea of – free public tuition, which we've been talking about for a few years now, thanks to the Bernie Sanders campaign. Mm -hmm. So co-determination is something that Americans really want. And um, when we return from this brief break, we're going to talk about why they don't have it yet and the places that do.
3: You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.
1: Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Earl hey. and Noah. Still here. We've been talking <laughs> about workplace democracy and specifically co-determination. Now, that term is uh, not very popularly known. It effectively refers to this business model of sorts wherein workers have, you know, at least a significant percentage of the representatives on a company's board. They have a significant significant percentage of the decision-making power within companies, as opposed to that power being held exclusively by management and capital. And we tend to think that's a good idea, um, because when workers have decision-making power, things turn out better for workers in general. Um,
2: what a surprise. Yeah,
1: yeah, and there are countries where this is the case already. Uh, we talked in the last segment about how Elizabeth Warren has put forth this bill that would require 40 percent of boards for companies making a billion in revenue each year Mm. would be elected by workers. And in Germany, for companies that have at least 2,000 employees, 50% of their boards are elected by workers. And 50% is more than 40%. It is equal representation with capital on the boards of companies. And what you see is less inequality. You see higher wages. You see results
0: yeah
3: yeah, yeah there's uh, there's no uh i don't think anyone would argue that uh, you know germany is the dom they would, wouldn't would argue against the fact that germany is the dominant uh, economic force in europe you know and the fact that that their largest companies uh you know are using a codeterm- co-determination uh model i don't think is coincidence uh you know um and just the standard of living seems to be Excellent. I mean, as far as, you know, from my friends that have been there, I haven't been there myself, but. (laughs)
1: One one thing that's been noted in studies is that German companies, because of this model, tend to have lower ratios of profit to input, basically, and as a result, do worse on the stock market, which is bad for stockholders, but good for basically everyone else at the company, including the workers who
2: actually do all the work. Yeah. It's – stockholders are – especially in country – well, in in the US, stockholders are a vast minority Mm -hmm. of the population, and yet we bend over backwards as a country – To make them happy. Whenever we talk about economic growth, it's almost always in terms of stock value. Whenever you talk about a company's value or a company's revenue, it's about what it will do to its share prices. I mean, what passes for public media in this country cannot stop mentioning how three of the major stock exchanges did every five minutes.
0: Yeah,
1: right. We have very much, to some extent, internalized this idea that the Dow Jones Industrial Average is the economy, and you know when those points go up, the economy is better, and that's good, right?
3: Right. Which it's it, which is abs- specifically with the Dow Jones is is it's absurd on two for two reasons. One, the, the Dow Jones is made up of thirty companies, like mm-hmm. thirty companies is hardly representative of the U.S. economy. But secondly, the idea of using the the stock market for for a working class person for for anyone that's not in the investor class, which I think I've read it's something like 10% of the population owns about 80% of the value of the stock market, right? So it's a very right. small, very small percentage and of people.
1: 50% owns nothing at all in right.
3: Stock yeah. 50% right. doesn't own a single, not, not anything in 401k, not a single thing. So the fact that when you, when you watch the news and you see them talking about the stock market, unless you're in that 10%, realize that that money, <laughs> that the, the reason that that money exists and that they're doing well is because you don't have it right uh, that, that the 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 reason that the stock uh, you know the stocks have value is because the ceos are doing these whatever it takes to maximize profit for the the company and that includes you know like all the things that we talked about that happen at amazon with just the way that people are treated at work and low wages and any so every time you see that every time you see the stock market going up if you're not in that 10 percent, you should be thinking man that's Every whenever that goes up, your value is going down as a worker, yeah. basically. Like, that's the metric you should look at. When you see the stock market going up, you should be upset, not, you know, not, not happy or proud of your country or being like, oh, we're doing great. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
2: no, and, and ultimately when you give workers a say in how the company does, I mean, they're the ones who, like we said in the last segment, they can't just get up and quit and go to another company and expect to do as well. You know, they don't have the protection of the social capital and the networking and all of those things that executives and CEOs tend to be good at. They can't simply just get golden parachutes. Right. So it turns out that when workers are given a say in how their company does and what it does, they tend to actually have the company's interests at heart way more than some dude who yeah. got there five years ago and is now looking for any possible way out of his job. Yeah. They they have longer-term thinking. Mm-hmm. They are more willing to you know stick with lower profits on the stock market and lower short-term revenue if it means that the company is healthier in the long run, instead of what we see over here, which is like, you know, everyone's on, where the stock market is just like one big speed rave. Right,
1: yeah. The f- study I saw was like, they those companies take less risk, which, you know what I mean, to some people sounds like a bad thing, but to most people, most people are fine with taking less risk in your life. And as it turns out, the companies that take that less risk End up better off for it in the long run because they aren't investing in harebrained schemes like Theranos <laughs> or doing these things, you know. In the so trying to in the hunt for profit, in the hunt for like a ten percent return on interest, you know, capitalists will do just crazy things,
3: right? Yeah,
1: that uh, workers who you know will have to be there tomorrow tend not to do.
2: Yeah. I'm I'm about to do something that I said in the very last segment we shouldn't do, but yes. politicians like to tell us, um, you know, that the government is like a family budget, that the the national budget is like a family budget, and we all need to tighten our belt and learn where to sacrifice and cut corners. Well, much the same way what these businesses do in pursuit of profit is the equivalent. Of you with your family, which is your workers, taking your life savings and gambling them all on some ridiculous, you know, I don't know, million to one odds, right. um, and uh, more often than not losing all of it, and then blaming your family for making you do it, and then disowning <laughs> them.
3: This this metaphor has gone. No, off no, rest, no. Yeah, but <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know when they take when they take risks uh, like that. They've got no, they have got they themselves the executives have no, nothing to lose right like if they they're in a position where it, worst case scenario they get f- fired right but they're already supremely wealthy mm-hmm. uh so there's no there's no risk for them um they can only they' got nowhere to go but up uh and the people that suffer as we've you know <laughs> uh you know as we've seen with you know going back to like tarp and stuff i mean the uh, thankfully uh, the taxpayers are there Right. Uh, and ironically, you know, y- your company is an excellent capitalist uh, enterprise if you can avoid paying taxes and stuff. So it's just mm-hmm. like this whole, uh, you know, it's just a, a monstrous scheme, uh, I guess. I'm still working on that metaphor. That was beautiful. <laughs> That's one word for it. Uh, no,
2: we we have created a culture in this country of basically, again, like I hate to go back to this uh, image, but it we have taken – Uh, what was a system that was already bad, which is capitalism. Capitalism is bad, folks. Not good. (laughs) Suboptimal. Uh, We we took that system and then we basically just pumped it full of amphetamines Mm. because even, you know, there are large Wall Street banks that were once famous for making long-term and stable decisions and now are the complete opposite, which I think gets at what, you know, Warren is trying to say when she justifies the bill. She... She and many of the politician class and many Americans remember when that was the case, when companies could be trusted to make, quote unquote, good decisions and uh, have a social dimension and and try There's corporate responsibility. There's
1: famous quote by an executive about, uh, you know, what what's good for GM is good for America, which has been taken out of context from how he originally meant it. But, you know, it's yeah. sort of remembered as sort of emblematic of that era when you know the fortunes of you know ford and working families were somewhat intertwined
3: yeah yeah, there's more, there was more. There a more balance. There was less inequality. They're you know they're paying higher taxes and pay, paying them at all. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Amazon's still not paying taxes, right? Is that the deal, or you know, occasionally?
1: Well, that gets to another thing is they were paying higher taxes. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Sort of to go back to the Elizabeth Warren thing is mm. she kind of leaves out you know the fact that these companies were paying significantly higher taxes at the time. You know, that's why you know profits were being shared with workers because they had to pay 90 percent income tax yep all oh, right yeah. Um, and,
2: yeah and there's another reason that profits were being shared more with workers specifically mm-hmm. which is that those workers were in unions ah, mm-hmm. that could right. bargain collectively and that had power and right. that and it's that power that has resulted in
1: systems like Germany's where they have co-determination enshrined in law and mm-hmm. I think it's very interesting to see if or how uh, Elizabeth Warren's plan might work trying to reverse that. Yeah. It, she's very much trying to create the benefits that came with not just co-determination, but with unionization and all these other things that were part of the New Deal, and trying to create them with just co-determination from above rather than with pressure from below.
2: Right, which is why I'm not as optimistic as I think you two are about the mm. uh, the future of the bill, because it is a good structural solution or a good attempt at a yeah. structural solution. But, Ryan, uh, do you – I think you mentioned what the union density in this country is currently like.
1: It's
2: 6% in the private sector. Yeah. Right. And meanwhile, in the countries – in countries like France and Germany and Sweden, where works councils and and co-determination are the norm, maybe not so much in France since they elected their Jupiterian president. Um, But in all of these countries, unions represent 90 percent or 95 percent or some uh, vast number – vast percentage of the population. So in those countries, there was – there's obviously been a greater degree of class consciousness since day one. They've always been able to sort of um, push for, for greater unionization. And what politicians have had and what the servants of the moneyed class have had to fight against is basically they, they've had to fight against them from the structural side because there is a cultural assumption that workers will have these organizations. The, that we do not have in this country.
1: Right, it's we have a lot of structural problems that one bill alone, no matter how good, won't be able to solve.
3: Uh, one of the things I I will say to the credit of this this bill, um, and I don't know how long term uh, you know or you know the machinations they completely thought about it this way, but so. The, the Warren bill is different from the co-determination code in Germany, because Germany is based on number of workers, right? And, and Warren's bill is based on revenue. so they're talking about companies that make more than a billion dollars um, a year, which is, I think, in one of the articles I read, is you know, a1,000 and some change maybe. So not a, ton, not a ton of companies, but of those companies, you're talking about companies like Walmart, you're talking about companies like Amazon that employ uh, huge, huge groups of people. And so if we start seeing some co-determination. Code um, you're going to see what, what I think would happen. What I would hope would happen is that wages are going to go up, right? And so when wages go up, this is this is it's not it's not UBI, but it's a backhanded way to raise wages for lots and lots and lots of people, which then, of course, forces other companies that are sub a billion dollars a year to have to compete with those wages, right? So in a weird way, I'm not sure if it's like uh, you know, uh, it's just. Um, uh, you know, that might not even be worth keeping in, honestly, but I was kinda like thinking of I If was, I'm like, going, if I'm <laughs> honest, I, I think what
2: companies will simply do is what uh, you know, Bell Telephone and so on have done when they get hit with antitrust lawsuits and so on, they'll find a the way to split. Um there's there's mm-hmm. gonna have to be some way of enforcing attempts by these corporations to somehow bring their revenue under that limit. I have no doubt that they can figure that out. Yeah. The question is, how do you stop them? So I'm hoping that there's some real toothy enforcement mechanisms Mm -hmm. built in there.
1: Well, as we've said before, there's an element of theater to this. This bill is not going to pass under Donald Trump. And even when Democrats take power, if Democrats take power in 2020, there's no guarantee that Elizabeth Warren will have the same fervor for this bill that she does in the fall of 2018. Um, In 2008, for example— Obama campaigned on card check, this idea that union recognition could be could happen on a unilateral basis rather than requiring a national labor review board election, which companies can find ways to apply pressure on. And he came into office with a supermajority and with you know the country really hungry for you know change. And card check got lost along the way for mm-hmm. reasons that we've talked about on the past on this show, being that the Democratic Party has always been at least somewhat distant from the working class. It's, yeah. it's always only been part of the coalition. So again, so this bill is more symbolic than, maybe than actually intended to be placed into law.
0: Yeah.
1: But the re- But as symbolism, it sort of, it tries to address a problem that A lot of people have been looking at in the past few months, you know, there have been a bunch of articles asking, talking about the wage puzzle. Unemployment is down. All these economic indicators are up and wages are not. Wages are stagnant. And this bill tries to engineer one way to boost wages, which
3: is worker power. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and long term, I mean, obviously, the three of us would agree. You know, the more power the workers have, the better for almost everyone. I mean, yeah. just you know, not not the shareholders necessarily, but it's going to be good for. Yeah, we'll scroll. Yeah, well, right. I mean, that's you know, how how much is how, how much is enough? You know, take take yeah. it easy. Um, and I chill out, dude. Yeah, I, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah.
1: And I think we would say that the solution to the puzzle is worker power. You know, the reason wages aren't going up is because. We have six percent union density in the private sector. We have, you know, no real pressure on employers to offer better than they are offering now.
3: So, uh, we've talked about a lot about what we understand or what we think we understand about this. Um, what are the wh- who opposes workplace democracy, or, or, or wh- what are what are the arguments against something like this?
1: Well, the capitalists oppose it because they're capitalists, and this reduces right. their power. Sure is a th- strike against their very real power over the economy. And they will oppose it for that reason. They will point to, you know, as we talked about, Germany's lower rate of profit to input, if mm-hmm. the lower stock market value of its companies. They will say this is going to wipe out X percent of the wealth on paper in the stock market, and they will attack it on those grounds as inefficient.
2: Okay. Okay. Yeah. And they'll also say that it's socialism and that, yes. uh, uh, yeah, and, and right. that you know right. it, it's going to uh, – th- that eventually it will apply to small there, business owners mm-hmm. and whatever.
1: The, there was a piece in the National Review that th- tried this as nationalizing everything, which – Great publication. Absolutely <laughs> is not, unfortunately. Not even close. Right. That but, would yeah. rule, yeah. but – and there's sort of a, a two-step which has been pointed out, which is that when, you know, things like this, which are already in place in Germany, come up, they're decried as hugely socialist. And when people point to the success of Germany as Europe's largest economy, they will say they're actually capitalist. And <laughs>
2: right. there's a... yeah. Yeah. they're just dancing. It, all over it's it. capitalism cannot fail; it can only be failed, mm-hmm. and uh, when it is failed, it is because you're being socialist, apparently. Right, right. Oh. And since I've already staked out the pessimist uh, ground on in this trio, then I think the other reason that we're not seeing this opposition messaging already is precisely we we just talked about how this idea isn't really in the discourse, so to speak. Mm-hmm it we're, we don't talk about it and the whole reason we're sitting here recording this episode is because this kind of came out like a bolt from the blue it's mm-hmm. it's not a thing that was in it being discussed in the US but i guarantee you that that polling is going to start going down the moment that first like doesn't this remind you of the soviet union <laughs> comes out on some political ad All right
1: yeah. i i i think that's fair um i the number i saw was it was like Fifty-two percent supported mm-hmm. the idea of you know having that vote over your boss, and I think if you frame it that way, it's still going to be popular. But yeah. it yeah. hasn't really been attacked, yeah. as we know it will be attacked.
3: And just as mm-hmm. like a little point about that number, it was fifty-one percent for, and then there was like thirty percent that weren't sure. So it wasn't that the other forty-nine percent were like, no man, right? I'm not into that. It was like, whoa, what exactly would that? And it's like, it's like I feel like they were like, well, that sounds a little too good to be true. Yeah. What do you, what do you, what do you, what do you, mean? Vote for my boss. Yeah, like, are they going to know that how I how voted? No? no, I get right. Exactly. Yeah. Right, you know, like,
1: <laughs> and I think after this break, we're going to talk a little about a little bit more about what that would actually look like.
2: Hey, Hey guys, you know, that feeling you have at work, that dead inside feeling bad news. We can't really help with that. Good news. We can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on FM
3: Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are.
1: Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, still here with Earl and Noah. We've been talking about workplace democracy, and now we want to talk more about what that would actually look like in practice. It's not something that I think a lot of people are familiar with, thinking about the idea of having some say over your boss rather than just the other way around. It's, it's a fun thought, isn't it? Oh Oh, yeah. makes me real. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
3: Feel, feel great about it. It's
1: and as we've discussed, the idea pulls well when you ask people about it who even if they haven't really thought about it before, but it is something that exists in practice. We've talked about co-determination as being one form of workplace democracy. It is not worker ownership. It is not total worker control of the workplace. But it is a step above what we have and what we know here in the United States. There was a recent article in Kotaku, which is a video game website about Motion Twin, this French video game company, which is run by its workers exclusively. They're they're a small company, admittedly, but all the workers in it make the same amount of money and they have the same amount of authority when it comes to decision-making processes. They operate as a true democracy, not as sort of the dictatorship that we know workplaces can be. And I want to read from this article a bit. Motion Twin's pay and ownership system, Bernard, a, a designer there, said, constitutes quote, a direct challenge not just to the exploitative practices you see at a lot of the other companies, but also to tired old world corporate structures in general. Games are team projects after all, and Bernard believes that it's almost impossible for anybody to definitively declare that their particular contribution of blood, sweat, and tears had more of an impact than anybody else's. Bernard would not disclose the exact salary at everybody at motion twin brings home but said it's roughly the same as in other game companies and this is a company that has been very successful especially of late they recently put out a game called Dead Cells which has gotten incredible reviews and i have friends who play it it's very good
2: and uh, for for an industry that is particularly famous as we now know for abusive workplace practices mm. it's particularly uh uh
1: it's a fun story. I, yeah. It put a smile on my face. And just to give context about that sort of abuse, um, like video games are something that a lot of people want to work on. And because of this, companies are able to sort of justify just awful working practices, especially in the final weeks before a game comes out where workers are often doing just absurd shifts and just killing themselves trying mm-hmm. to finish this project. And, and, motion twin as discussed in this article is not having so much of that problem though it still exists even in a worker collective.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And and they mentioned that they've taken steps to reduce crunch time and burnout, which are those two major problems they've started asking, you know, an employee uh if if they're if they seem to be on the verge of burning out like, "Why don't you just go home?" Mm-hmm. Because it's more important that you come back tomorrow happy and ready to work that the game get finished today and much the same way for things like crunch time yeah they experience it uh and th- and that's still a thing but they try to like make sure that number one that it's not a burden on any given employee and number two that it's as minimized as possible which other uh, you know big video game studios aren't even trying no. to minimize it
3: well that's the and that's one of the things that it's always struck me is so obvious uh as far as the incentives for working at a, a worker-owned uh, business like that is that you you're actually invested in the the well-being of that company. So whether that means you know keeping keeping shifts shorter or pushing the release date back or something like that a, a little bit more, so that the people that are working with you, it's just it seems like there's a higher there's going to be it's going to nurture a higher level of respect because uh, you are actually part of a team or potentially you know if you want to call it a family or whatever, all those things that big corporations try and like. The, like the double speak stuff mm-hmm. you know what I mean it's actually true in a, you are in fact all in it together uh, and it's just it seems to make for a, a healthier workplace yeah you know? absolutely yeah. and and I mean that's why those corporations have to say that because again it's not true right right, right exactly yeah Where I, I doubt they have any inspirational posters it, on the on the wall at, at uh at motion twin you know uh you no know. cats <laughs> hanging off right the because exactly, they don't because they don't need them they they don't need them they're already all in it together uh, and they live and die. By, well, you know that's excessive, obviously, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah. the,
1: the, and yeah. the article pa- makes pains to note that this is a small company that has had trouble scaling up in the past. But there are much larger examples of mm. this model working. Uh, there's a company from Spain called Mondragon, which is famously the largest like worker is it a co-op collective? I'm not sure exactly how to classify yeah. it in the world, and it has all these different subsidiaries. It's a yeah. conglomerate that is, you know, in its company rules, has explicitly set out ratios for, like, executive-to-worker pay that right. average out to be, like, 5 to 1 yeah. compared to the U.S. average, which is, you know, 320 to 1.
3: Yeah. yeah, Which is great. Just one of the small benefits for that there is that if the executive wants a raise, everybody gets a raise. Yeah, yep. that's yeah. that's that's beautiful. But, yeah, I think they they have – what is was 80,000? I think I read it as a number that they're, they're – that's a – a team of eighty thousand people, so this thing can scale and do lots and lots of things, and uh, i 'm not totally clear on what their organizational structure is or how they make decisions, um, but eighty thousand that's a lot of people yeah that's, that's a lot of people it's it's hard to get anybody to work together like that
1: <laughs> and this is sort of an ambitious project, both whether it's on the scale of motion twin or on the scale of Mondragon to you know be to set out as a worker-owned project in capitalism. France and Spain, they are still capitalist countries, even though they have perhaps more worker protections than we are familiar with here in America. And capitalism has a way of squelching out these alternatives by any means necessary. And I think, Noah, you're going to talk a bit about how that happened here in the the U.S.
2: Yeah, um, I think I'd like to, to talk a little bit about the fact that We've been talking about codetermination, and we've been talking about workplace ownership. And I think it's important to note that once upon a time, these were alternatives that the U.S. labor market explored in the late 19th century and uh, early 20th century. At one point, they were, I think it, it at its peak, it reached something like a couple million workers were involved in uh, some form of workplace democracy. In some cases, it would be very formal and it actually completely mirrored the American government. So it would be a House and Senate elected by the workers, uh, with or sorry, a House elected by the workers, a Senate elected by middle management, and then top management forming a cabinet that could veto um, the, the legislatures, effectively, uh, their laws, but then the legislature could override that veto and did successfully on more than one occasion. There were cases where it was a unicameral works council like what there is in France or Germany or Sweden or what have you. Um, And in the end, all of these were squelched, and this will not surprise you if you listen to this show habitually, by the Democratic Party because FDR and uh, Robert Wagner and all of these uh, Democrats, well, really all of the politicians in, in the House and Senate, in the actual House and Senate, were scared of what this meant. And so they, the National Labor Relations Act, which is generally seen as a victory for labor, squelched company unions completely. It made it illegal to have them because one of the first cases of them was the president of what is now Macy's asking his workers to help run things like insurance plans and accounting and so on for the company. And they effectively formed that democracy, uh, not under his guidance, but with uh, not only his permission, but his encouragement. Mm. And I think it's important to note, what what is important to note for me out of this, is that this is a choice the capitalists are making. This is a strategy they are employing. Right. This isn't some cultural artifact that is immutable. Mm-hmm. And there, um, there's a quote that I read a few months ago by the head of the teachers of one of the teachers' unions in Puerto Rico, and one of the things she likes to say is that this is a strategy, this is a choice. And once you know that, you can defeat it. it doesn't have to be the way it's been here because it wasn't always that way right
1: right, as we've tried to explain on this show, there are alternative models to the way America does business there are some of those are m- more successful and more uh socialist than others, but e- even just the basics of like the Swedish model where you know, so many people are in unions where they have these sectoral unions. They have these weird, uh like, corporatism where, like, the state mediates between businesses and unions. They produce right. just immeasurably better work results for workers. Yeah. Um, You know, Germany, with, with its explicit co-determination. Or if it's, you know, Motion Twin and Mondragon, where workers are making very similar amounts of money to the higher ups as it were right
3: yeah it's and it's it's really important i think for you know just to to touch on you know noah's point that this this can be you can combat this like it hasn't always been this way and it really shouldn't be uh this way you know i i read something recently uh i wish i can remember from where it was so i could give them proper uh cred but um you know, starting starting a worker co op is is tough uh, to start one from the ground from the ground up. And what what I one of the suggestions I read, which was really interesting, and I never thought about it, was that they, in the next ten years or so, there's going to be a huge uh, group of baby boomers business owners who are either retiring or or just in one way or another, th- their businesses are going to be leaving their hands. And so one of the strategies that I, I read that was suggested was to try and um, lo- lobby these business owners to turn these businesses into worker-owned collectives. Like instead of just giving it to your kids who may or may not be interested in running the business. I know lots of kids who their parents have done, you know, restaurant owners or something. These kids don't want anything to do with the, the restaurant, but they're going to begrudgingly take it, and then they're going to hate their life and blah, blah, blah. Anyways, the point being is that there, there is, you know, a great opportunity there to start these, you know, to, to, to the ball's already rolling. The people already work there. Just hand it over. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sell it or whatever, however you want to do it.
1: And I think it was last year, the election in the UK, uh, the Labor Party's platform explicitly included this idea where if a company goes up for sale, workers would have the right of first refusal to buy it. If it's going to be closed, workers would have the option to keep it running as a worker co-op. And that's just an incredible thing That's, to imagine. Uh, yeah. a major party including yeah. in its platform, yeah. and the idea of it, you know, actually becoming law is. Think of what that would do for workers, for yeah. mm-hmm. you know, the economy as a whole. It would drastically change things. Yeah. Um, the sort of idea of you know resurrecting these sort of closed down factories and shops. Uh, I th- sometimes they're referred to as like phoenix companies because, Mm. you know, they're rising Mm -hmm, from the ashes. Uh, I think in Argentina during the financial crisis of the last decade, you saw this happen a lot where workers were, you know, seizing the means of production at their closed down factories and building these collectives that, you know, on a small scale and at least for a while helped them make ends meet in ways that capitalism was unwilling to do.
3: Yeah. Mm Yeah yeah that uh, that's that's amazing. The the right the right to first refusal is just such an interesting and, and s- genius. And it preserves
2: the through line that we've had throughout uh, in this whole episode which is that workers deserve that power. They're the ones who do the work. Right, They're exactly. the ones who are there every day who don't get the golden parachute, don't get the nice retirement package. Yeah. They don't get to leave whenever they want to go to another equally lucrative job. Yeah. They are more subject to the winds of capitalism than anyone else at the company. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And just to use a local example, you know, the tops grocery stores, they're they're shutting down, I don't know what number of stores it is in the area, but a lot of people will be out of a job. And imagine if they had, you know, the not just the ability, but the right and I think part of the labor platform included like financial help for allowing them to keep working at these stores. You know, the buildings are still there. It's just, you know, the capital that has pulled out, you know, because Topps is, it's like a vulture capital owned company now, and they've made some debt leveraging that has required them to gut labor costs. Imagine if those stores were owned by the workers, you know, the same people the same employees now running the store on their own
3: yeah you know? yeah or if yeah if the if the city could or would be willing to you know support the transition a little bit just to mm-hmm. you know just to make things a little smoother but yeah that would be that would be amazing cuz a lot of those stores that are closing are in neighborhoods that need grocery stores right, right? you know what i mean they're they're not you know Wegmans famously only has the one store left in the city and it's on east ave You know what I mean? So some of these, some of these neighborhoods are very underserved, uh, and so to have a a worker-owned grocery store uh, like that would just have any grocery store, honestly. But if it could get worker-owned, that'd be amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: And what's the alternative? It's a lot of people without jobs, and it's a lot of buildings sitting empty. Who does that really serve? Yeah, yeah.
3: That's one of the. I mean, you know, we're we're up here in the Rust Belt, and that's I spent some of my formative years, you know, exploring. Vacant buildings and stuff, and the, a lot of the equipment is still there. there. So many. Of them. There's so many, and so many that that just look like they just somebody came in and said, "All right, y'all, we're closed." Like people had shoes That's under what they've literally yeah, done. There's shoes under desks. There's pencils right where they were left. There's equipment everywhere just sitting there idly, um and it's just it's just capitalism so efficient, you guys. Yeah, it's so it's so efficient. great. <laughs> Capitalists are brave, yeah. risk takers, letting, letting machines, letting machines and humans rust for three hundred years. <laughs> Wonderful.
1: Workers outnumber capital by a lot, and mm-hmm. I think I'm not, you know, saying anything wild here by suggesting that our system should benefit the many instead of just those few at the top who can, you know, jump off on their golden parachutes. Right. Absolutely. This has been a fun episode. I think. Uh, you know? Yeah. We've Ultimately, yeah, yeah. We've covered yeah. a lot of ground. Right. Um, I'm Ryan.
2: I'm Earl. I'm Noah.
1: This was Punching Out.
0: You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Punching Out Out. Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to PunchingOutWayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.